<laughs> actually, I was feeling super pressured about um, coming up with like a final sermon uh, for retirement. So I decided to take the pressure off and I'm going to um, indulge myself. And I, I realized I have four sermons left as a pastor at Blue Ocean. So uh, I'm going to do a little four part mini series titled What I Like or Love About Blue Ocean and how this community has helped me connect with God in ways that I couldn't have without you. So I don't know if you were with us in the first couple of years, I think, of Blue Ocean 215, 216. Many Sundays we would have someone, as we were getting to know each other, uh, tell their story and and talk about what was it that um, you know helped them to arrive at at this church that we were creating together. And it was uh, it was a real highlight of our early years and I never got a chance to do that. So, um, but I'm going to take four shots at it in a sermon format. So this, this is as much for me as it is for you. It's kind of part of my, uh, you know, you, when you retire from a job like this, you reflect on your whole career, you're assessing it, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful. Um, so maybe these sermons might be a little more personal than usual, maybe a little less text-based. We'll see. Um, if I want to tell a previous story that I like, I'm going to do it. If you don't take some liberties now, when will you, right? So today's topic stated uh, personally is for me, being part of Blue Ocean has been an occasion for noticing the unearned advantages of my social location, uh, what sociologists call privilege. Um, but more than that, in this community, I've discovered the joy of, of uh, noticing my unearned advantages more vividly and personally so I can loosen my grip on them, um, maybe stop asserting them as though they're earned and spend some of them when the opportunity arises. You know, at first, this growth process presents as discomfort, you know, oh, poor me. Uh, but but the pot of honey at the end of the rainbow is um, like a, a different and good sense of proximity to and awareness of divine presence. So I think it's um, it's a process that's actually at the heart of our faith. So some, some pre preliminaries, I'm kind of circling around this before I get right down to it, but some preliminaries. Uh, at the, at the age of 19, I cracked the Bible open for the first time in my life, and I read the Gospel of Matthew. I think I read uh, the Gospel of John after that, and then the Gospel of Luke. It, it was really an unexpected experience of feeling a pull towards something that I didn't understand, but I, I, couldn't, um, I couldn't shake. So it's taken me a lifetime to put words around what that pull was in my case. I'm not saying it's in, in the case of everyone who opens this book and starts to read it. I should add, um, I disagreed with lots of things uh, that were attributed to Jesus. Um, some still baffle me, but saving grace, I, I didn't feel obligated to agree with everything written from and to a culture so far removed from mine when I started um, started this project it it was the pull though that got me and has kept me engaged i, I think it helped that my earliest teacher a guy named haskell stone was jewish and he taught as a as a jewish person 
engaging the scripture and it's it's just very different in tone and approach he he taught as though these are mysterious writings admitting of many interpretations and that looking for the one correct meaning is a fool's errand um it's something to engage was what haskell um, emphasized which can mean being inspired being baffled being offended being moved Haskell taught me that being affected by arguing with, even protesting things that we find in scripture is part of engaging it faithfully. But the thing that kept me coming back was sensing some attractive pull upon entering the, uh, these writings. And that, that pull actually is something I felt very much at Blue Ocean when we get to that. Uh, someone showed me a picture of a turf cut maze that francis is going to put up for you i think the, the one that you're looking at is outside of cambridge england and oh that's interesting when you do that i can't see my uh see my notes so i'm just gonna have to riff it you know what a professional so turf cut maze um you enter it there like on your screen it would be like four o'clock and then you just follow the path and you can see that it's loaded with twists and turns it's like nothing but very sharp twists and turns and as people uh, move through it sometimes they're way at the edge of the um of the, the maze and sometimes they're um really close to the center it's quite a bit different you may have taken like a uh, done a corn maze which they have those around here a corn maze if i can remember is more like a puzzle like you can get lost in a corn maze and that's kind of the kind of the point and someone has to save you or there's ways of figuring it out but in this turf cut maze as long as you just keep going forward you can't get lost and you eventually end up at the center even though sometimes you're way at the edge and away from the center and then other times you're very close to it and if you do it with a group who enter at different times that you you see people in all those different configurations so um that sense of being pulled is what i'm talking about like not knowing where it is you're going not having really a clue about what's going on but nevertheless feeling the sense of oh i'm getting i'm getting getting pulled somewhere so back to my notes thanks francis So, um, yeah, you think I'm just riffing, I'm just talking like this and, and, and it's sounding so, so coherent. No, I'm reading some notes here. So, <laughs> um, I guess, uh, this particular, um, turf cut maze is, is probably pre-Christian. Um, and, um, they had an ash tree at the center and I was looking up ash trees. What's the symbol of the ash tree? And it was understood to be the intersection of the underworld, middle earth and the realm of spirits. So, um, whoever created these things are just, um, I think incredibly wise. And I, I would love to have the experience of going through, uh, going through one of those things. So. What was the vision of God that I found in the Gospels as they portrayed Jesus? And, and I am getting to what I love about Blue Ocean, but this is my roundabout way of getting there. Um, what, what had that effect when I first had um, exposure to reading the Gospels for the first time? Well, there's a, there's a hint of it in the reading today. 
Um, some leaders warn Jesus when he's in Herod's territory um, and uh, where Jesus, I think it was in the uh, northern part of Israel where Herod ruled. I'm not sure Emily would, would know better. She knows this stuff better than I do. But um, And the leaders warn him. It's an act of kindness because he's, he's in danger and they know it. And they're, they're warning him that he's in danger, um, that Herod, the, 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 the ruler, wants to kill him. Um, as he'd killed John the Baptist. So this was no idle threat. And Jesus says, go tell that fox, blah, blah, blah. Like he had me at go tell that fox. So Jesus took sides. He sided against powerful rulers who abused their power. And he sided with the people who were thus oppressed. Um, at first, I was like, Jesus, 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 you know, like I, I put Jesus is alive on the back of my blue jean jacket in 1971. Uh, I was one of those people. Um, and partly, I was so like taken with Jesus because I, I knew next to nothing of the long tradition that Jesus was part of. I didn't understand that Jesus was interpreting a vision of God that had a long pedigree among his people. Um, so that loving him for me is meant like loving the tradition that he he represented and, and is part of, and not just giving him credit for everything that I like, but seeing how much of it he's passing on what he received from others. So Matthew's gospel, the one I first started reading, uh, I didn't know this at the time, presents Jesus as a Moses figure, a deliverer. Um, bringing people into a place of safety. Uh, safety from harm is the core meaning of the Greek word sozo, which is translated in the Gospels, saved. Um, so it's this, this idea of a God who creates nests that Emily was getting at uh, last Sunday. So we meet Moses in Exodus, which depicts God as distressed by the crushing oppression of the Hebrews who are trapped in Egyptian slavery in Egypt. So this God, among the surrounding gods of the ancient Near East, and that's how God is presented in, in the scripture, especially the Hebrew Bible, this God is the one who hears the cry of the oppressed and sides with them. That's like his, this God's distinguishing characteristic, and it's quite different from the the gods of the neighboring peoples. So just to wrap up this preliminary thing, Moses eventually relinquishes his privilege because he meets in a burning bush the God who identifies with the suffering of the Hebrews and is pained by it, uh, the ones who are subjected to Egyptian slavery. Moses is drawn to this God and Moses catches God's concern for the suffering of his people which means for Moses resisting and opposing Pharaoh and identifying with the people of his birth, even though he was raised with all the advantages of being raised uh, by Pharaoh's daughter in the palace. But Moses doesn't do this alone. It's not like wealthy, privileged guy saves the oppressed. That's not the story. He does it together with his siblings, who are very important, Aaron, um, who's uh, the priest of the trio, and Miriam, who's also a prophet like Moses, uh, who were themselves enslaved people. So they're, they're like coming together again as a sibling unit. Um, liberation movements arise within the oppressed community, and at a certain point, they may gain the support of allies, 
And that's actually a good thing for the allies or the, the people who are supporters, because if you're not part of an oppressed group of people, you get to be on God's side by lending your support to the people who God sides with. This, this is the vision of God uh, going back to the book of Exodus, even Genesis, and you see it represented in the Gospels. It's, it's like how to be with God if you're fortunate enough not to be oppressed yourself. Now, remember Moses in his privileged state didn't look at the enslaved Hebrews and pity them. Moses met God in a burning bush and he caught from God, God's distress at the suffering of his people. So it was like a mystical encounter where the magic happened. So what, what does this have to do with um, my understanding, my unearned advantage and privilege because of my social location as part of being part of this church? It, it shows that for some people, an encounter with God involves that, involves recognizing your unearned advantage and then spending some of it as opportunity arises not just like asserting it as though it's it's yours and you've earned it it's part of a spiritual encounter and and i've ex i've really experienced that in this church um which brings me to one of the things i love about blue ocean the first time we gathered for worship i felt it and it and it took my breath away and um and it surprised me. And what's what is the it as I reflect on it? And I I think it's this, whether in person or via Zoom, it's knowing that so many people who are part of this community have paid some social cost to be here. And that's actually unusual in church in our in our society, with uh, so many people from a majority. Uh, uh, cultural background, especially. Usually it's all social advantage being part of a church. Like it's great for your mental health, blah, blah, blah. There's so many, it's a great networking opportunity. Um, heck, to run for president, you have to pretend to go to church, you know, even if you've never darkened the door of one. Rarely is there any social cost involved, like, like I say, especially for a majority population people. But so many people who are part of this community actually have paid some social cost to be here. Um, for many people, and not just our gender and sexual minority members, um, people arrive here like those who walk through a minefield at midnight. Um, there are also many uh, having left their previous and beloved communities that were working well for them, but they were just unwilling to enjoy maybe the great of your straight benefits of those churches, or they were unwilling at a certain point to abide the stunning silence in so much of the American church when things are going on in our society that the prophets of old in our sacred texts would have railed against, but, but it's barely acknowledged on a Sunday morning. So I come from an extended family that's very supportive of what our church is about. Um, but I know that is not the case for many who attend this church. And, and that simply coming to this church has created tension in some of your closest relationships. Um, some of you have like lost dear friendships because you come to this church. 
or, or you've disappointed parents and it's more awkward at Thanksgiving, especially if church or religion comes up. And, and who goes looking for that? Either way, it's, it's a cost you're paying for coming here. Uh, this is not the oppression that people in minority groups experience. I mean, you could make it all go away by going somewhere somewhere else, but it is a tiny taste of it. And, and I honor you all for that. Those of you out of conviction, spending some of your, I guess, religious privilege by being part of this church. I, I think it's an effect in you of the beauty of holiness of the God who lit up the burning bush and it grabbed me in the Gospels at age 19. I love that about our church. I, I love that I can feel it here. It, it is very, very dear to me. Um, being part of this church, um, you know, I'm, I'm a theological person. I'm a nerd. Um, this is important to me. It's an important aspect of me. And being part of this church really ramped up my theological growth in so many ways. Um, being part of small groups or one-on-one -on -one conversations with people whose life experience um, is so different than mine and hearing their stories. I, I, I heard people were much more candid with me as a pastor after I became a pastor of Blue, Blue Ocean than any other period of my pastoring before that in, in terms of hearing certain things that I just didn't hear before, because I don't think I had ears to hear, perhaps. Um, as a theological partner, Emily and, and more recently Caroline have really helped me with this um, because of the breadth of their theological reading. So at one point, um, I, probably, I might have told this before, uh, I think it was in 2014 when I was leaving my house I owned to move in with uh, Julia in her house and at one point um maybe it was a little adolescent of me but i went through my bookshelf at the old house and i saw it was loaded with theological books by white men who i knew had never paid any social cost for their faith but i also knew they were fawned over by a bevy of middle-aged white pastors at conferences and I just started pulling their books off the shelf for recycling. It's, it's a more colorful story than that, uh, but it's one that uh, involves a certain profanity phrase as I pulled each book off. I remember Julia looked at me, she said, oh, uh, she's an Episcopal priest. She's like, oh, I see you're working through some things here, Ken, aren't you? I said, yeah, I'm working through some things. Um, this church has, has changed the way I read the Bible. It's, it it's, might not be an ex exaggeration to say it saved the Bible for me as a treasured text that I can access, and that's really meaningful to me. Uh, it would have been a bummer for me to have lost that. Um, maybe I'll give, uh, no, I'm, I, I would never, I should never give this as a sermon. I should do this as a, uh, as one-on-one -on -one conversations with uh, older white men like me in the church. So if you're like over 50, we can talk about this. Um, but um, what I learned that was so eye-opening and really I, looking back was uh, an occasion for spiritual growth um, for me 
um, by being part of a of a working staff, a church staff, that until recently, when David joined our staff, I was the only person using he, him pronouns on our church staff for seven years. Um, or to serve on a church board that had uh, gender equity as one of its requirements, um, rather than it's like one or two or three non-males out of 10, you know, where the culture is still fundamentally, um, as men have been socialized in our culture to operate in groups. All my previous experience as a pastor, and I'm talking about decades, involved uh, being immersed in male leadership culture and I, I just didn't recognize it as such until I had the experience working on staff at Blue Ocean and it, it, it's really uh, I think it was just a, a fantastic um, privilege for me to have that experience and I, I really do treasure it. Uh, let me finish this up. Last Sunday um, Emily mentioned uh, more than once, she mentioned my retirement. And, and I think a couple of times I was tuning in on Zoom. Um, Emily was in person there and she kind of would look at the Zoom screen like she was talking to me a couple of moments. And she said she thought I was proud of this church, my work here. Um, now, a, a certain false piety cringes at that word, you know, proud. But when Emily said it, and she said it twice, it it really hit me and i realized i am proud of the work i've done here and i'll share a moment that's related to that in, in a minute um, but first i want to offer a lighter moment from my inglorious past as a pastor um, many of you know me as like the pastor of blue ocean but I, I was a pastor for i don't know i started doing pastoral ministry like in 1975 i was i think i was full-time as a pastor by 19 80 and uh, talk about uh, male privilege. <laughs> At the age of uh, 28, I had two Christian books published, which means I wrote them when I was 27. Jesus did not begin teaching until he was 30. Like you weren't supposed to start being a rabbi until at least age 30. And 30 was 50 now by comparison. And, and Jesus was like brilliant as a 12 year old conversing with the elders in the temple. I was not brilliant as a 10 year old conversing with anybody. But nevertheless, I had two books published. Um, the first I'm gonna show you here, um, it's titled uh, God First. What it means to love God above all things. I think it's a good thing to love God above all things. But I'm like, what am I doing writing about this at age 27? And I just think about like, at that time, I was still seeing everything through like a hierarchical lens. So I thought maybe I should, maybe I should reissue this book and I'll retitle it God First, Nine Billion People Second, me third you know it's like the this trope in certain aspects of christianity that everything can only make sense in a hierarchy and it's all neat and and the, you know you you cannot find that in reading our scripture text other than the obvious preeminence of of god but it's the preeminence of god among the gods anyway 
now for the moment I am I really am proud of as a pastor that I think opened the way for me to be part of a church like this, given my prior experience as a pastor. Um, this occurred in 2011, I think. Um, I was knee deep at that time into telling people, key people, including my church board at the time, that I was not happy with the teachings that discriminate against LGBTQ people. And I, I was reassessing and I was in a serious reassessment. Um, and a couple came to meet with me at my office and they were very dear people to me. They were also very large donors to the church that I was pastoring at the time. And in the sector that I used to be a pastor in, large donors meant like, I mean, large. That they put it to me straight. They said, Ken, are you saying that you are open to doing a wedding for a gay couple? We need to know where you stand on that. I mean, it sounds so silly today to even just say it out loud. Like I'm embarrassed to say it in this context. But then it was deadly serious. You, you know how in a car crash, everything goes into slow-mo? I have like a slow-mo memory of that moment that is like filled. Um, I was very tempted to say something like, well, I'm still wrestling with that. This, this is a very common move for clergy who are, you know, personally affirming, but not willing to be publicly affirming which is the only affirming that actually matters. Um, in 2011, I could have justified, I think, responding that way. Um, and, and uh, you know, I've done so many progressive leaning pastors in these non-affirming settings who engage in prolonged, never ending wrestling for years. It's, it's really a bandaid on a troubled conscience. But something happened in that moment that I regard as, as looking back as a genuine mystical experience. Um, a newer at the time congregant, Lisa, floated into the room. I got Lisa's permission to share it. You know, you probably know who I'm talking about if you've been around for a while. Um, I, I mean, her personal presence, uh, or I guess maybe you say her spirit, um, floated into the room. So with Lisa floating there, to my left, like I can picture it, it was to my left across from the couple I was meeting for just like it was like she was listening in. I knew that however I answered that couple's question in that moment, in order to maintain my self respect, I would have to answer it as if Lisa was right there. Because for all intents and purposes in my mind and spirit, she was. Uh, you should know that Lisa is an attorney. And I felt like I was in a courtroom under oath, so to speak. And then I just heard myself say, uh, I have to acknowledge the logic of my position leads me to that conclusion. <laughs> what a roundabout way of saying yes, but I think it counts as a yes. That ended the conversation, except for like a few pleasantries. And when the couple walked out of my office, I knew I was seeing them for the last time as their pastor. So obviously there was nothing heroic about that moment. It, it was a fair question for them to ask, and I owed them, uh, these congregants, an honest answer. It was just like a decent thing to do. But I know that many in this church understand how difficult it can feel at the time just to say something you haven't said out loud before to someone who may or may not want to hear what it is that you're saying. 
And once you do it, you properly feel proud that you did. I think another word for pride in this context is self-respect. You, you respect yourself. What I love about this church is that I can tell a story like that and know that you will understand. Um, you'll understand that people um, can and do change and grow, that we do internalize the, the, um, the ethos and the values and the perspectives of our, of our groups. It's just how we're made as human beings. You, you understand that life is full of twists and turns. And in 1979, a person might sit for a photo having been told, oh, did I not tell this part? This, <laughs> oh my gosh. I didn't tell the best part of the God first story. Okay, let me finish this. Okay, here's the cover, but here's the back. Take a look at that author photo. Okay, there's a story behind that author photo. As I thought, sat for that author, author photo in 1979, my um, like supervisor, my elder in this community that I was part of, and there were many beautiful things about this community that I treasure to this day, but there's a lot I was like, oh my God. He, he was maybe two years older than me, and he was like uh, higher up in the hierarchy, and he said, Ken, um, be sure not to smile for your um, author photo, because I was trying to smile for the author photo, and he's right there, like supervising my author photo. I said, don't smile. So well, why not? He was like, well, you know, in Timothy, I forget if it's first and Timothy or second Timothy, excuse me. Um, you know, the, an elder is supposed to be is supposed to be serious, and then he said. Um, also, um, men smiling in photographs is a sign of men being feminized, as though that's a bad thing. And so I sat and I didn't smile for the photograph. And I regret that. Number one, that is not my best side. My other side is my better side for a photograph. But of course, I didn't want to be vain, so I didn't mention that when people are picking out the photographs. And number two, I look like I'm sitting on with a, a broomstick up my behind. Like, it's just like, that says so much about why the 1980s were a bad, um, were a bad time for me. Um, so that was a swing and a miss. And, but you understand that later you get another opportunity and this is a time when you might do yourself proud and it's a really good feeling. Um, and you learn to be compassionate toward your younger self and you feel gratitude to a God who helps you feel proud of something that you were enabled to do in a moment when it seems like it mattered. So no, I'm not going to lead a meditation after this sermon, um, but maybe in the next day or so, um, you might be open to remembering something that you did or something that you said that looking back, you're proud of and take a moment or two or three or longer to savor that, um, to remember it and to savor it and to credit yourself with it, to really notice it and maybe even share it with someone who would understand it as I've shared this with you.